Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. We are going to be looking in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, and skipping ahead a little to verses 10 through 15. In the epistle, we're in the Sermon to the Hebrews again, chapter 3, verse 12 through 19, and the gospel text is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. So let's start with our Old Testament reading from the prophet Amos, the fifth chapter, verses 6 and 7, 10 through 15. Seek Yahweh and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. That's a strong first paragraph, isn't it? So (laughs) a quick context here for us. Amos is a prophet of God sent to actually both kingdoms, the north and the south, He's writing somewhere in the range of 792 to 740 B.C. Um, And at this point, both kingdoms still stand. Israel is going to fall in 722, so not long after the end of Amos' time in, in the ministry. And Judah lasts for longer than that. The outline of the book of Amos could be broken down like this. Uh, The first couple chapters, the judges, the judging of God against all the different nations, and then... It moves into a series of accusations that God makes against Israel. Then there's a lamentation, uh, sorrow for Israel over their sin and the, the destruction that's coming. And then we get our text today, which is part of the exhortation for Israel to seek after Yahweh. Moving on from this text, you would then have Judgment Day followed by several visions. We actually had one of those visions of God back a few months ago, um, 13 weekends ago. It was the, what was that, the, oh, I guess it was proper 10. So it's been, uh, it's been 13 weeks. All right, so looking at the text then, what's going on here? Seek Yahweh and live is quite the opening statement, and it's true. It was true for them then, It's true for us now. This is what it's all about. This is why you're here. This is what Jesus means in the gospel account when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. It's it's what it's for. We are here with the purpose of loving God and loving our neighbor. Seek Yahweh. And those who seek Yahweh, those who follow Christ, they get to live. And the Bible does make that distinction. Being in Christ is life. Being apart from Christ is death. Matthew 25, as Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, which is those who are faithful and those who aren't, the sheep are raised to life. The goats are raised to judgment. Note that both are raised, right? But there's that distinction between them in the text. So this is true of the Israelites what is that, 2,700 years ago? They, if they would repent, if they would turn from their wicked ways and they would trust in God, they would live. He would spare them. He would not bring his wrath upon them, but he would give them his mercy. Repent. Trust in God above all things. And this is true even for us right now, right here today. Repent. 
Trust in God above all things, and he will give you mercy. He will give you his grace. We're going to come back to that very thought when we wrap up at the end of the text today in verse 15. What's the opposite if we don't repent, if we don't trust in God? Well, for the the people of Israel at the time, lest, right? So seek Yahweh, or this is what will happen. He will break out like fire in the house of Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son of Israel. As the, the kingdom divides into two separate kingdoms, the north and the south, the south consists primarily of Judah. Most of the tribes remain in the north. So what we see here with this idea of Joseph is likely making a reference to the northern kingdom, to the nation of Israel, of which Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, their tribes are are part of that land. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 6 might help support this where you see that distinction, there's the house of Judah and there's the house of Joseph. So the two separate kingdoms. So God's wrath, God's judgment being brought against the northern kingdom. And and that's shown here by the, the next phrase, that that fire, that judgment of God, that wrath of God would devour Bethel. Now that's important. Um, what is Bethel? Bethel is a city approximately 15 to 20 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital, was the capital of the United Kingdom, is now United Kingdom as in north and south, not modern-day geography. This is now, though, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. So when the, the nation divides, when it splits under the reign of Rehoboam, the foolish son of Solomon, When that happens, Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom, Rehoboam to the south. Jeroboam looks at it from a worldly perspective. He sees the idea it's good for his people to be people of faith, but that doesn't mean the the true faith. It doesn't mean seeking Yahweh. It just means having a religious conviction of some sort. But he's concerned as a king that if his people were to travel from the northern kingdom of Israel and they would cross the border and go to the southern kingdom so that they could visit the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, that they wouldn't come back. And so Jeroboam erects two golden calves because the one golden calf in Israel's history wasn't bad enough. He makes two of them. And he takes one and he puts it in the northern city of Dan, up in the northern part of the northern kingdom. And he takes the other and he puts it in the southern city of the northern kingdom of Bethel. So the the border between the two kingdoms is in between uh, Bethel to the north and Jerusalem to the south. So this is about the southernmost part of his kingdom. He places this golden calf and he tells his people to go and worship there. So Bethel, prominent in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, in Hebrew, Bethel, Beth, Beth, Beth in English is house, and El or El would be the Hebrew word for God. So Bethel literally means house of God. And there's a connection to the book of Genesis for why it got that name. So false worship has been happening. Massive idolatry in Bethel. 
And so it becomes the prominent point of God's wrath on the northern kingdom because that's where his people are turning away from him. It's where they're rebelling against him and worshiping an idol. So the Lord will destroy it, and there will be none who can quench that fire. There is no one who can extinguish the wrath of God, except for God himself, which gets us to Jesus, and we'll hold that for the very end of the text. So instead, we continue this theme of of that judgment that would come in verse 7. They turn justice to wormwood. So they ought to be just. They ought to deal with the people well. They ought to care for one another. Right? We talked about love God earlier. Love God, love your neighbor. And instead, they've turned it into wormwood. Wormwood is a, a bitter plant. Uh, probably hear a figure of speech for something like sorrowfulness or, or gloom, despair. So they've taken justice and they've, they've betrayed it. They don't care for one another. They care only for themselves. This is the sinful nature. This is what we do too, right? They cast down righteousness to the earth. So they, they take the, the good things, they take the, the ones they're to care for as well, and they throw them to the earth and they tread them underfoot. They don't, they don't show justice. Now, here we have skipped over verses 8 and 9 in the text today. I'm always curious why the... The lectionary committee decided to skip the passages that they decide to skip. And I don't know. They, As far as I'm aware, there's not a book somewhere that says we skipped these verses for this reason or we paired up these texts for this reason. So let me just read you verses 8 and 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. So, verse 8 praises Yahweh, praises God as the creator who made the stars of the heaven, who made the... I mean, he takes the night and turns it into day each day. He takes the waters and he pours them out upon the earth that the earth might have rain and and might have growth and crops. It is the Lord who does all of these wondrous things. Yahweh is his name. He also brings destruction against the strong, against those who think that they can defend themselves, justify themselves. I don't know why we would skip that text. Anyway, um, now you move into what would follow, and this is all one paragraph for us, verses 10 through 15. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so Yahweh the God of hosts will be with you, as you have said. 
hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate, it may be that Yahweh, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So we pass over those verses about who God is and how he judges the strong, and then we move into why those strong deserve the judgment. Right? Verse 10, they hate. Who is they? It's those strong. It's the, the ones who dwell in a fortress and think that they can defend themselves from the wrath of God, that they can quench the fire of Bethel. They hate him who reproves in the gate. Now, in fairness, you could look at him who reproves in the gate as being God himself, but anyone who comes to speak the word of the Lord, anyone who calls them to repent would be who that references, refers to. So the prophet Amos would be an example here. What is the gate? Well, we just got done talking about a fortress. The, The city has an entry point. Right, this, To enter the city, you go through the gate of the city. That gate became the place of the business affairs of the city. Politics, if you will. They discuss what needs to happen. They hear court cases. They, they do all the important matters of a community life right there in that place. And so here is one who has come into the gate, which means he is a He's approached the elders, he's approached the leaders of the community, and he has called them to repent. He's reproved them for their pride, for their idolatry, all those sorts of things. They hate him for it. They're not going to hear his rebuke. They're going to hate him, they're going to abhor him for speaking the truth. There is only one truth. You either have the truth of God or you have the lies of the devil. They have the lies of the devil and a prophet has brought them the truth of God's word and they have rejected it. Therefore, because, and notice the doubling down there, the usually you're only, you're good with just one of those words, therefore, or because, but here we've got both of them the reason for why it happens, the reason for their just judgment from God is this. You trample the poor. You exact taxes from him. That's that justice idea being turned to wormwood from before. They're not caring for their neighbor. They're caring for themselves. I mean, 1 Samuel warned that this was coming. 1 Samuel chapter 8, God warned of what the wickedness of human government would do. But they bought it. Well, I guess they didn't buy it. They they didn't care. They wanted it anyway. And it just continues. There is no good government upon this earth. They all have their authority from God. We obey them as such. But they're a reminder of the curse. They're a reminder of our rebellion against God. We have wrought that evil upon ourselves. Trample the poor. You exact taxes from him. The poor doesn't have the money to give. He doesn't have it to spare, and yet you take it from him anyway. 
So here's the, the judgment of God. You have built houses, you shall not dwell in them. You've planted vineyards, you shall not drink their wine. You're going to do the work, you're going to do the labor, but you won't be here to enjoy it. Now that could mean two things. I guess you could find other things. But here's two plausible options for you. It could mean you're dead. You built the house, but then the Lord judged you. You're gone. You're dead. You can't live there. Somebody else will live in the house instead. But in the context of history, what we know about not just Amos, but the fullness of the history of Israel, this is exile. You're going to build the house, but then the Assyrians will carry you off into exile. You won't live in it. You're going to plant the vineyard, but they'll carry you off into exile, so you won't actually get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's the picture here. God's judgment is coming. He's going to carry them off into a foreign land, and it will be others who get to enjoy the work of their hands. And another reason, clause, verse 12, for, right? For I know how many are your transgressions. They deserve God's judgment. I know how great are your sins. This is true not just of them, but it's true also of us. Our transgressions are numerous. Our sins are great against God. So the Lord lists a few of them again, and it's similar to what we've just talked about. They afflict the righteous. That was verse 7. They cast down righteousness to the earth. They turn aside the needy in the gate. Um, That was the combination, really, of verses 10 and 11. So it's not just that they reject the one who reproves them and calls them to repent and speaks the truth of God to them at the gate. They turn away the one who is in need. So the needy come before the elders of the city. And instead of receiving care, instead of receiving aid, they're cast out. They're rejected. One of the functions of the Old Testament tithe was to care for the widow and the orphan, and also the Levite. But there's no care being provided here. One of the functions of the Israelite period, like any of them, was if your brother became poor, you invited him into your home. There's even a whole system set up for that, and it does use the word slavery. But you cared for him. You put a roof over his head. You put food on the table in front of him so he could eat, he could live. And in the year of Jubilee, he would go free, or in the seventh year, he would go free. And you would even send him off with whatever he might need to start again. You wouldn't just send him out empty-handed because he'd end up right back in the same spot. And yet they weren't caring for the needy. Structures were in place, but they only cared for themselves. That they take a bribe also fits into this idea of not being just, right? I mean, if, you're, if you think of a, an official, a judge, who is supposed to judge between two parties, and he's willing to take a bribe from one of the parties, he's no longer a just judge. The truth, the details, the evidence, the witnesses no longer matter to him because he's been paid to take one side or the other. 
when bribery is afoot, there is no justice. This is why bribery is very much condemned in the Old Testament. You cannot trust a judge who is willing to take a bribe. Verse 13, this has caused, therefore, the prudent one, the wise one, to keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. So instead of pressing on for justice for those who need it, they have seen that that would be futile, that it would be worthless and vain, but worse than that, dangerous, that pressing on for justice might get them harmed. Like the prophet Jeremiah, for example, who will press for repentance of the people. He will speak of reproof in the gate. He will speak truth in the gate, and they'll put him in the stocks. Eventually, they'll kill him for it. This isn't to say verse 13 is good. It's not to say the people who fell silent were doing the right thing. Never be silent. At the very least, the wise ought to still pray and trust that the Lord is in control and leave vengeance to God that God would deliver those who are being unjustly treated. But beyond that, the wise ought to continue to speak the word of God, to speak the truth into the midst of the darkness. Yes, it might end in your harm. Yes, it might end in your death. But guess what? This is what Jesus has called us to do. We, ourselves, now, presently, live in an era of darkness, an evil time where people love their own life. They love this world world rather than loving God, and they reprove anyone who would seek to speak the truth to them. They will hate you for it. And yet we are called by Christ to share the word of God, to share the good news with all nations. We are not called to be silent. We are called to speak, to speak the word of God. And if they kill us, Dear Christian brother or sister who's listening to this podcast, if they kill you, where what happens to you? Where do you wake up? You wake up in the arms of your Savior, Jesus. We don't know how that plays out. I don't know if there's a time of rest until the day when Christ returns. I don't know if we get to, like, skip right over all that time because God is outside of time. He created time so he can do whatever he wants and we just go straight to paradise, to the judgment itself. I I don't know. But I do know when we die, the body and the soul are ripped apart. The body lays in the ground and the soul is at rest with Christ. He is caring for you. And this is what gave Paul the confidence and he writes as such in his letter to the church in Corinth that he can go on doing the things he does. He can go on preaching in the midst of all that he has suffered and, and had happened to him because he knows the hope that he has in Christ. He knows that even if he die, he will rise and he will live forever. 
He says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, well, 13 and 14. We also believe, so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's confidence to continue to press on and share the good news. So that fits with our text here as well. Verse 13, this is not approval that the wise have fallen silent, but it is what has happened. The truth has, well, those who share the truth have been so abused and battered that those who now know the truth are afraid to say it. And we are reaching that point in our own culture, and we've largely done it to ourselves because we were afraid to speak the truth even when it wasn't dangerous to do so. All right, verse 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. So that's uh, the repetition of verse 6 from up above. Seek Yahweh and live. God is good. We're going to see that in the gospel text. Jesus will, will say that very thing. So if you seek God, you live. God will be with you. Yahweh, the God of hosts, armies, if you see that phrase in the Old Testament, go ahead and read armies. It's all right. Um, the, the word host in English can mean army. That's just not a definition for it we use anymore. So Yahweh, the God of armies, will be with you. What a comfort that is. Here your enemy is opposing you. Here you go to the gate to speak the truth to the leaders of your community. They reject it. And they want to harm you for it. They want to tread you underfoot. Well, guess what? You've got the army of God on your side. You will be avenged. It may not be what you want it to be. It may not look like what you want it to look like. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Don't curse them. More words of Jesus. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. See, do what is right. This is a call to repent. It's also a call for the wise to be wise, and to share it. Where else will the leaders get the wisdom from? They're certainly not going to get it from themselves. They've rejected it. They don't know it. They don't have it. It must be shared. It may be that Yahweh, the God of armies, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. If you repent, it may be that Yahweh will be gracious. That sounds not unlike what the king of Nineveh said in in Jonah's time when Jonah called them to repent. And and the king tears his clothes, everybody mourns, everybody's fasting at the king's declaration. It may be that he will relent of this disaster, and he does. See, in the Old Testament era, may be is about as good as they could say. They didn't know. They didn't know what the future held. They didn't know if God would relent of disaster or not, but they would pray for it. They would ask him to relent of disaster, and oftentimes he would. There were a few times where the judgment was so fixed, so hardened, that there was nothing they could do to prevent it. That gets back to verse 6, right? There's a judgment coming on the house of Bethel, a fire that cannot be quenched, and when it gets to that point, no amount of repentance is going to fix the situation. It will fall. And it did. 722. 
when the whole northern kingdom collapses. So Old Testament, it may be that God will be gracious. That's not the case today. Today you have a guarantee. You have a guarantee. You know that when you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful. You know that the Lord is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know it because Christ died on the cross for it. And if Jesus would say no, when you, so you confess your sins to Jesus and he says, oh, no, I'm not going to forgive you today, his own death would be in vain. He's not going to do that. This is why the, the words of the absolution that are spoken are spoken thus, Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you of all your sins. For his sake, for the sake of Jesus himself, God is not going to make his own sacrifice in vain. He's already died for you. He's already paid the price for your sins. He's already shed the blood and suffered. Why turn away from it? Why go back on it now? He won't. Your sins are forgiven in Christ alone. You are his. In the Old Testament, it may be that Yahweh will be gracious. But under Christ in the New Testament era of the church, he is. Let's look at our epistle text from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. We actually get a break from what is the, the normal key theme of the book of Hebrews, which in a sense is the idea that Jesus is superior to all things, um, or the Old Testament picture of Jesus as the, well, the great high priest, doing what the, the Old Testament priest couldn't do, um, as he himself is perfect, whereas they were not. Here, though, we have, we have another one of the, the themes that does work its way through the letter as well, it is the warning against unbelief. So let's read our text. Um, we're going to do it in two parts, verses 12 through 15 first, and then we'll come back 16 through 19, which really just show us what the Old Testament quotation mark is about. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Take care. Be cautious. Be on your guard. Keep alert. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This is a caution against unbelief. What happens to those who have an evil, unbelieving heart? They are cast into the fire of hell. They are judged. They are damned. And this can happen to us. Right? This happened to Israel. That's our Old Testament text. They fell away. Seek Yahweh and live, but they wouldn't. So they, they had the evil, unbelieving heart and they perished. 
an evil, unbelieving heart can lead us to fall away from the living God. So there's your warning. And it's several times in the, in the book of Hebrews, in this sermon, that you can fall away. Right? We hear it again and again in the culture around us within the church. Um, the Calvinistic churches don't really teach this. Uh, they have their own thing, the perseverance of, of grace, that, that God's grace is so irresistible that it overwhelms you and you can't possibly leave it. It will persist in you because God makes it persist in you is a little different, not quite the same as the once saved, always saved idea, although they really go hand in hand. But I've heard enough people say, oh, I don't believe once saved, always saved, when they, they hold the same kind of an idea that you can't fall away. But there's enough warnings in Scripture about it that wouldn't make any sense to put there if it weren't the case. Hey, you're baptized. Congratulations. See you in paradise. Doesn't matter what you do now. That kind of lawlessness destroys faith. And so there's warnings against lawlessness all over the New Testament. Instead, we are to exhort one another every day. And I love the phrase, as long as it is called today. Did you, did you think about that one? It is always called today. No matter what day it is, it's always today. If you are alive, if your eyes are blinking, and you're drawing breath, it's today. Whether it's right now, in the moment that you listen to this. Well, that's an interesting thought, because this is a recorded podcast. Whenever you listen to this, it's today. Ha! Huh. Whether it's tomorrow from when I'm recording it or five years from now when I'm recording it, it's still today. And guess what? If it's still today, what should you be doing? Exhorting one another. Urging one another on in your faith. Proclaiming the gospel to one another. Encouraging one another. Uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with joy in your heart to God, something like that. That's the picture, right? Or Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Do we have those coming up? We do in uh, how many weeks is that? One, two, three, four, five. Five weeks from now we'll get that that text that in the last year or two has been much more prominent than it ever has been in our American culture, the idea that we are to not neglect the gathering, but we are to gather and we are to encourage one another, and we're to do so all the more as the day draws near. I look forward to talking about that text with you in a month. All right, so encourage one another, exhort one another, urge one another on so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice that picture. We know hardened heart is not a good picture of Scripture, right? That Pharaoh had the hardened heart. That was a bad thing. We know that when we hear those words, we're hearing about unbelief. 
that the Lord can take your hard heart and give you a new heart. Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me from the Psalms. And he does this when he gives us faith. That's the original confidence of verse 14 coming up here in just a moment. If we allow sin to deceive us, it hardens the heart. The bludgeoning of the conscience over time can indeed drive us away from God. If you indulge your sin, as though it can be, it entices you. It feels good, and so you want to do it again. And after doing it a few more times, you you suddenly stop feeling the need to repent of that sin. You suddenly start to, to try to self-justify it and see how you can call it good when the Lord has called it evil. And over time, it grows darker. It gets deeper. It cuts deeper. And your heart is forced to harden itself so that it does not feel that pain. So that it is not reproved by the truth. So that it can hold on to whatever that sin is that you love so dearly. Sin is dark. And it deceives. This is Genesis chapter 4. That sin is (laughs) leaning against the door. uh, I think is the way I translated that from Hebrew recently. Um, Sin is crouching at the door, I think is the ESV's way of handling it, seeking to master over you, but you must rule over it. If we allow sin to simply wreck its havoc in our lives, sin will harden us. It will turn us away from the Lord. Your sinful nature is within you. Drown it daily by remembering your baptism. As Luther and so many other great theologians in history, so many great pastors in the church have said, remember your baptism daily. Every time you see water, remember your baptism. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember that you are not a slave to your sinful desires of your wicked and evil heart, but you are his. You are his child. You have been saved by him. He has forgiven you of all your sins. That's something I just said that we should note here. Your heart is evil. I know our culture doesn't speak that way, and we fall into that trap in the church too. Just follow your heart. No, no, and no, and no, and no. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. Follow his heart. Our own hearts are evil. Read Genesis 6. God found that the hearts, the thoughts of the hearts of man were only evil all the time. Or our gospel reading from just a few weeks ago from Mark chapter 7, that out of the heart come the things that defile a man. Don't trust your heart. It will, it will lead you astray. Trust in Christ. Trust in his word. Let your... Let your heart and your mind daily be transformed by Christ's word. Put to death the old Adam in you. Christ will do it. Christ is doing it. He is restoring you. He is making you into a new creation. You are his. So cling to that original confidence, firm to the end, right? That's verse 14. We have come to share in Christ. If 
we hold fast. If we cling, you can walk away. You can fall away. That's the warning. That's the caution. Instead, here is the, here's the opposite. Hold fast. Hold that original confidence firm to the end. Uh, that original confidence is the reference to the Spirit creating faith in you. Whether that was through baptism or through the proclamation of the gospel, that the Spirit gave you a new heart. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Follow Christ. Stay firm in his word. Trust in him. You have learned everything you need to know. You have the gospel. Verse 15 continues that warning. It pulls it out of the Psalms. Uh, the first line of that is actually Psalm 95. The second line of it, I think, is Psalm 95, verse 8. So 95, 7, and 8 split over here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As we'll see in the next paragraph, that's a reference to the Exodus account, to the wandering in the wilderness of the Israelite people. But here's the warning, and it fits to you today, right? As long as it is called today, exhort one another, because as long as it is today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't be like those who sat in Israel's city gate and, and rejected the truth and hated those who would reprove them. Don't harden your heart. Hear the exhortation. Hear the word of Christ that exhorts you. Hear the, the word of your neighbor in the faith that, that encourages you. Hear these things and repent of your sins and trust. Each day you have that opportunity to walk away as Adam and Eve did in the garden. Don't harden your heart. Don't fall into the rebellion. That text gets quoted again in chapter 4, which we have next week. All right, let's read our last paragraph here. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So a lot of questions here with a lot of simple answers. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Israel. And Psalm 95 is referring us to the wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years because they had rejected the word of God. They had rejected him as their Lord. Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? So, yeah, the however many of them there were, we only ever get the census of the men. And that was at over 600,000, 603,550. But I believe that's after some of them have already been killed for unbelief in the wilderness at that point already. And it doesn't count the women and the children. So, and you've got, that's only 20-year-old men and upward who are able to battle. You've got a large number of people, numbering in the millions at least. Right? Two million, three million, whatever it may have been, we just don't know. But they rebelled. All of them. 
They provoked God's wrath against them. Israel did, right? That's 17. They provoked him by their constant grumbling, by their constant discontentment, by their constant seeking after idols, longing to go back to Egypt, back into slavery because it was better there for them. Oh, the sinful desires of the wicked heart. That takes us to a text that we really should look at here that comes together with this quite well, and that's Numbers chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 21. Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. That's Yahweh speaking about this very judgment, that these Israelites who sinned in the wilderness would fall in the wilderness. They would not get to enter the promised land. Save two. I'm not sure why Joshua is not mentioned there in Numbers chapter 14. He's going to be the one that leads the people in. So Joshua and Caleb were both spies among the 12 spies. They were the only faithful ones, and they are labeled the only faithful ones among the entirety of the people too, not just among the 12. So of these, verse 18, God swore they would not enter his rest, these who disobeyed him, who rejected him. That brings us to verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So they were unable to enter his rest, which we normally hear our reading as the promised land, right? That they would get to cross the Jordan River, they'd get to go into the land of the Canaanites and help dispossess it and take it for themselves as God has promised to them this place of milk and honey, this beautiful place to call their own home. Verse 19 tells us that entering his rest means more than that. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. To die in unbelief is to be damned. To be condemned to hell. And so these... These not only don't enter the promised land, they don't enter the new promised land either. That's... Our promised land, the promised land that you and I get to look forward to. The promised land that Jesus himself has promised to us, the place where he will be our king and we will reign with him over the new heaven and the new earth, where he will wipe away every tear from our eye and there will be no more pain or suffering or death. That promised land, that is his rest. That is God's rest. These did not enter it. Dear brother and sister in Christ, here is your warning. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God that you would not enter his rest. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. As I was studying our gospel text from Mark chapter 10, I realized Jesus just invited this man to die with him. 
Yeah, let's take a look. So our context from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, Jesus, last week in our text, which was the start of the chapter, had that conversation with the Pharisees about divorce, and then he brought that child into their midst of him and the disciples. He sat the child down and said, whoever does not have faith like a child will not enter the kingdom of God. So you have to have faith like a child to enter paradise. That faith like a child is the realization that we are worthless, that we bring nothing to the table. We have value because Jesus died for us. You have value because you were bought with his blood. It's not about what you have done. It's about what he does for you. And that's the very thing that Jesus is going to try to get this unnamed man to see. Check it out. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, Jesus is the subject of verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey. What journey is that? Well, we have to fast forward. Um, Which text would this be? This is going to come up. We skip it. Oh, bummer. Looking at the weeks ahead, next week we're in verses 23 to 31, and then we skip to 46 to 52. It's in verse 32 that you realize where he's going. Chapter 10, verse 32, we learn that he and the disciples are on the road to Jerusalem, and they're preparing for the triumphal entry. That's why I said in the intro here, Jesus has just invited this man to die with him. Because he's about to set out on the journey, he just invited this man to come along. And there in Jerusalem, he's going to die. Come die with me. And that is the call that Jesus has placed on you and on me. Whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel will have life, but whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Tough words of Jesus, die to self. It's not just Jesus though, right? I mean, the epistle writers do the same thing. Paul in Romans chapter 12, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices In in other words, offer yourself to God. That means you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for him. You do whatever it is that he would have you to do. That's the call. That's the call of the Christian. Seek Yahweh and live. There's your connection right to the Old Testament text. Seek Yahweh and live. It's also connected by this word good. Seek good and not evil. Jesus is going to talk about who exactly is good, right? So Yahweh is good, Jesus is Yahweh, so therefore Jesus is good. Let's get to that. So this man comes up, and we don't know much about this man other than that he is 
prideful of his possessions. It's about what we know. And he is known as the rich young ruler by some other gospel account and other translation. But let's focus on how Mark phrases things. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you see how his question is an oxymoron? Like those things don't fit together. You don't do anything to inherit something. An inheritance is given. You don't earn it. That's a big deal here. Um, Think about the parable of the tenants in connection to this. This would be coming up in Mark chapter 12 in our lectionary, except for we skip over that parable, in part because it's in year A in Matthew 21, and it's covered in year C in Luke 20. Uh, Matthew is around this time. I forget which proper number it is, but it's right around the same time of year as we are right now. And then with Luke's account, I I think it got recorded at the end of the season of Lent, like Lent 5 in year C. So we skip it in Mark, but think of the parable of the tenants anyway. That they, the master, God, leaves the tenants in charge of his vineyard, his, his land, that they would care for it. And, I mean, that ends up being, right, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and those that he's left in, in charge of his people, that they would care for the people. And you think of what the tenants should do. They should care for the vineyard. They should make sure it's growing properly. They should harvest it at the proper times. They should send parts of that um, what is made back to the master um, because it is his. The harvest is ready, but the workers are few. Well, the, the workers instead, when the master sends a servant to collect what he's going to collect at the harvest, the, the tenants kill him. They kill the servant. So he sends more, and they kill them too. And eventually he sends his son, and the response of the tenants is that, well, here's the son. Let's kill him, and then we can claim the inheritance. That's not how an inheritance works, right? The father will come with an army, and he will destroy those wicked tenants is the uh, outcome of that parable described even by the people who heard it. You don't earn an inheritance. There's nothing you can do to steal an inheritance like that. It just, that's not how an inheritance works. It's a gift. It's given. In order to get this inheritance of Jesus, in order to inherit eternal life, is a thing of faith. You have to be a part of the family. And this this then gets us at Mark chapter 3 from several weeks back, right? Who um, this goes all the way back to the, really the first, I guess the second Sunday after Pentecost because you have Trinity Sunday is the first one. But Mark chapter 3, we learn that Jesus' blood family in this world thought he was crazy. They tried to bring him home and get him away from the crowds to get him to stop teaching and doing miracles because he sounded out of his mind to them. They didn't believe. And so when they come to gather him, the the crowd tells Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here for you. And Jesus responds by looking around and, and saying, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, referring to all of those around him, those who had faith, those who heard him, those who followed him. 
trust in Christ. Believe. You inherit something because you're part of the family. So, to this rich young man, if he wishes to inherit eternal life, he must be part of the family. He doesn't have to do anything. He just has to be in the family. And we learn in the text that he's not. Let's continue that. So Jesus responds at first to him saying, Good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I'm going to pause there. I don't want to jump into verse 19 just yet. What is Jesus saying? Why does Jesus even say this? Jesus is not calling himself not good. Jesus is not denying his own divinity here. Right? You could misread it that way if you don't see the context together. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Yeah, you could easily see that as saying, I'm not good because I'm not God. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's going the opposite direction. In fact, he's trying to get this man to see him as God. He's trying to get this man to confess faith in Jesus. You just called me good. Only God is good. Go ahead, confess it. Say that you believe that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. Make a Peter-like confession here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Say it. Believe. That's the push here because then, guess what? It answers the man's question, right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you want eternal life, you have to be a part of the family. How are you a part of the family? You're in the family by faith. Young man, just confess your faith and you're in. You've got it. This gets us to John chapter 6, verse 29, where Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the work of God is to believe, is faith. And, and that's still not even our work, right? It's the work of God. God does it. God gives you faith. We talked about that in Hebrews chapter 3 with the original confidence that we have from the Spirit creating faith in us. So Jesus here is aiming for a confession of faith from this man. You can almost imagine then a pause there before he speaks verse 19. doesn't have to be, though. He seeks the confession of faith and then simply says, you know the commandments. Any Jewish man would have known the commandments. And he names some of them. He names the fifth, do not murder. He names the sixth, do not commit adultery. And then the seventh, do not steal. The eighth, do not bear false witness. And then he combines the ninth and the tenth together in this coveting idea. And, and he uses the word defraud, do not defraud. And then he goes back for some reason to the fourth at the end here for honor your father and mother. Skips over one through three. The commands about loving God. Maybe that's an invitation too. For that man to realize, hey, wait a second, you forgot the ones that are at the beginning of the list. You forgot about loving God above all things. <laughs> that's the problem. This man is not obeying that first commandment, is he? We're going to get there. Verse 20, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's false. 
somebody was not paying attention during the Sermon on the Mount. In fairness, he probably wasn't there. But he has not kept the Ten Commandments, not even close. None of us have. None of us can. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We all deserve death. Jesus could go on and on and on about this man. He could attack each of these commandments and list out all the things this man has done, but he doesn't. Let's see Jesus' response. How does he respond? Jesus, looking at him, loved him. In Greek, that's the word agape, the unconditional love of God. Jesus wants to save this man. He loves him. And so he says what must be said. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes straight for the kill. He goes straight to the heart. He knows the idol that sits enthroned in this man's heart, and he attacks it. He goes straight to the law that this man needed to hear with a call to repent. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is not a word that Jesus speaks generically. It is not a universal command that you must do this said thing. This is a command cutting right to the heart of this particular man. Because this, this wealth is his idol. Let's go ahead and skip to that and then we'll come back to what Jesus said. How do we know it's his idol? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He can't do it. He cannot bring himself to do what Jesus just told him to do. He doesn't repent. He trusts in his wealth. He trusts in his possessions more than he trusts in God. Remember the Lord's Prayer. It's possible this man has never heard the Lord's Prayer, but give us this day our daily bread. This man is not trusting in God for his daily bread. He's trusting in himself. He has enough. He has the wealth to provide for himself. He has the home to provide for himself. He is set. He is good in the eyes of this world. But that's the problem. He trusts in himself. He trusts in his stuff. He does not trust in his God. And so Jesus calls him to repent, to turn away from the very thing that is destroying him, the very thing that is causing him to be hardened in his heart. Seek Yahweh and live. And the man won't do it. So let's go back to what Jesus just told him to do. Take your idol. Take all that possession, all that stuff that you trust in so much. Get rid of it. Give it to the poor. May it help them. We had something about helping the poor in the Old Testament text too, didn't we? You will have treasure in heaven. This gets back to the Sermon on the Mount that I already mentioned, Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thief breaks in and steals, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thief break in and steal. What is treasure in heaven? It's Jesus. 
That's the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. It's getting to be there with your Lord in paradise forevermore. And this man had it. Jesus was handing it to him right there, in person, in the flesh, right before him. And it would have been almost instantaneous because sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have me. You will have Jesus in the flesh right here. And come and follow me. Die with me this week. And rise with me. I mean, look at that context. This man would have actually gained within a week's time everything. He would have had that treasure in heaven. He would have been with his Lord in paradise. But instead, he lived on in this world, trusting in his stuff. We don't know his outcome. We don't know if sometime down the road he repented. Or if he was like the parable that Jesus tells elsewhere of the man who stored up for himself so much and when he had excess again he built new barns saying that he was all, he was, he was well off. He would be able to provide for himself forever. And the Lord spoke to him that night calling him a wicked servant. That night his soul was demanded of him. And what would become of all that stuff? What good would it do him? None at all. So we don't know what happens with this young man, whether he lives on for a long time and remains hardened, whether he lives for just a short time hardened, or if he lives long enough that the message of Christ's resurrection reaches his ears and he's brought to repent. Maybe we will see him in paradise, but as of where we leave him in the gospel reading in any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, he is left hard in heart. That seems like a sorrow note to end on. Do not let there be an evil heart, unbelieving heart in any of you, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Jesus goes to the cross to die within a couple weeks' time from this gospel reading. And we are called to be there with him, to share in his sufferings, that we may also share in his reign in heaven forevermore. Amen.